Welcome to episode 204 of the Piper's Dojo audio experience. So uh, today I've actually mixed down an interview that I did with Andrew Fusco of the Las Vegas pipe band. And I really enjoy how the interview turned out. Fusco is like super funny and uh, we both share a, I don't know what kind of sense of humor you would call it, but uh, we had good times hanging out and we've become pretty good friends, but um, they did a great job with this. And if you get a chance, be sure to subscribe to their YouTube channel. Just search Las Vegas pipe band and they'll pop right up and you can see the funny uh, video where I weigh a lot more. That was before my long winter of CrossFit activities too. So uh, that was pretty fun. So anyway, without further ado, check out this um, interview conducted by Andrew Fusco of yours truly. So uh, enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of Inside the Circle. Coming to you from McMullen's Irish Pub in Las Vegas, Nevada, I am Andy Fusco, and I'm here today with Andrew Douglas of the Piper's Dojo, Dojo University, and Inverary Pipe Band. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Andrew. Nice to see you. All right, let's get right into it, shall we? I started uh, the practice channel with my dad when I was eight years old. And uh, I think technically I got my practice channel when I was seven, but I like didn't do anything with it. And so, uh, but by the time I was eight, I think I kind of got into it. And then, obviously, things happened pretty fast at that point. Uh, I think I was a grade one piper by the time I was 14. Wow. So, and, and I was professional right around the time I turned 16. So, like, uh, so yeah, once I was into it, and my dad taught me how to play, um, and, and uh, he taught me the basics, and then I learned with Donald Lindsay after that. Pretty famous American piping teacher. Uh, and so, yeah, the sort of things really kind of went fast once I decided I really enjoyed doing it. Okay. So how long did you learn from your father before you started with Donald <clears throat> Well, it's not really like cut and dry like that, is it? So, um, but um, I started with my dad probably for the first full year. Uh, and he would give me one lesson at a time out of the green book. Uh, and he would not teach me another lesson until I mastered the current one which in retrospect is like really the name of the game, isn't it? Like really achieving mastery of each subsequent thing before moving on. Um, I was introduced to Donald probably at you know, the one year mark. Um, we played in a band called the Mohawk Valley Frasers, uh, a great New York pipe band. Uh, and they would have Donald in to teach the band on a regular basis, like once a month or so. Um, so that's when I met Donald and I think he and others saw that I was talented, so I would end up having lessons with Donald um, every other week. And that's sort of, um, you know, I, I can, and, but I continued to learn from my dad at the same time, if that makes sense. Donald was just more about, you know, addressing those really high level things, you know, to set me up for, a, you know, a trajectory of being really successful with the instrument. Okay. So you said at eight years old is where you really grabbed onto it. I think so, yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, when you started with Donald, did you did he start teaching you P-Rap right away? Um, yeah, I would I would say so. Yeah, I, I think at that time I was starting to get interested in playing solo competitions. I played in my entire first year of grade four without playing any P-Rap. Um, but then that would have been the time I started to work with Donald and 
Um, and yeah, he would have introduced Pete Rock right away, but not too much all at once. I think that's the genius of Donald, is at least at first, I was like, ugh, what is this Pete Rock stuff? <laughs> Uh, and, and so, you know, I th it was all very carefully orchestrated, I'm sure, not to overdo it and not to sort of, you know, disinterest me from that sort of angle. And it took me a long time. Uh, I love P-Rock now, but even all the way through grade one, it was just something I kind of had to do. And um, I enjoyed winning P-Rock contests, but I didn't really have a love for the music until probably, you know, quite a bit later. Well, let me ask it to you this way, because I'm a teacher. Uh, of piping, and I have young students, so how would you advise me and to other people out there that are teachers how to introduce, say, something they don't want to do, P-Rock, or even MSR, or things of that nature? How would you try to get young kids, uh, how, would, how would you advise me to approach them? <clears throat> I think, you know, I, I think the bottom line is nobody's ever going to do something they really don't want to do. Mm -hmm. I think for me, I wanted, I, you know, didn't want to play P-Rock at first, but that was before I saw and understood the role that P-Rock plays in being a successful solo competitor. So when I was young, what got me into it was <laughs> the necessity of playing it if you wanted to win and progress through the ring. Uh, was there a crossroads moment in your life where you decided heights is your thing? Yeah, um, yes. Uh, I, it was the first year I played in the SFU pipe band and I stayed at Jack Lee's house for the whole summer. It was really, really cool because I was only maybe 17. And I remember him sort of like informing me that I was going to teach at Piping Hot Summer Drummer and thinking like, geez Louise, that sounds uh, pretty daunting and whatever. But, you know, he paid me the same as everyone else on staff, even though I had never taught before. Um, you know, treated me the same way in all the meetings, even though I was a super young guy. And I just remember various points during that week. I don't know if you, have you ever been to Piping Hot Summer Drummer? It's a really, really great experience. And um, I just remember at certain points during the week, really, really clicking with the idea of teaching. And people were really, really interested in what I had to say. Um, and it just sort of became, uh, it became a real passion right away. Like, and, and, and it became clear that teaching was going to be a big part of, you know, my future and that, you know, it wasn't a point of no return, maybe, but that, that I certainly always go back to that in my brain when I think like, how the hell did I end up here? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is the most important trait of a good teacher? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's, um, you know, it's not necessarily whether or not they're, you know, disciplinarians or whether or not they're like super, uh, Visionaries. I think it's consistency, encouragement. Um, I think I think when it's a two-way thing, it's re really important. It's not you know not so much you know just do this and don't ask questions. It's always like somebody that encourages questions and has a conversation. Uh, yeah, consistency. All right. Could you share with us uh, perhaps a fondest memory of piping, and then maybe after that, a very embarrassing moment. Okay, there are many, many, many of both. Okay, great. Um, so I'll just, I'll name one that comes to mind, fondest memory, uh, when I won the Nickel Brown Chalice Contest, um, which is, for those who don't know, it's, an, it's a grade one amateur contest, but it's an invitational. So they invite all the best grade one players from North America into one place, 
and they have a panel of very famous judges. <coughs> Jack Lee was on the panel that year. He may have actually judged it solo that year. Now they have more of a panel. It might have been solo at that time. Um, but I was very young. I just turned 14. And I was sort of lucky to be invited. Just the way the points worked out and there were some other really good players in grade one. And I kind of, I wasn't really dominant that year. I did well, sort of snuck in. Uh, but I played three really great sets and ended up winning the contest outright. It was a huge moment. Met Jack Lee. Uh, which turned out to be like a really important sort of stepping stone in my career. So that's probably the fondest memory overall. I'll, although I've done a lot of other cool stuff, uh, like qualifying in grade one with Warren Moore at the Worlds was amazing. Taking big prizes in the silver medal was cool. Winning the B grade light music at Oban was really awesome. But that's probably the fondest. And as far as most embarrassing, I can't tell you. We were talking earlier, like, <laughs> like dropping drone reads in the bag. I've done that at least a hundred times at extremely inopportune times. You know, like uh, at least a hundred. My bass drone has popped out of my, like the whole stock has come out probably three or four times, like at really bad times for it to happen. Like one time just warming up for a solo contest in professional grade, like my bass drone just comes out. And at that time, no real means to deal with the issue. Like I couldn't, didn't really know, so a fellow competitor saved my butt, Duncan Bell. It was amazing. And it was really awkward, you know, because just that day happened to win the contest. And Duncan, like, I think was second place, and I was like, thanks for helping me with my bass drum. Should probably cut that. It's probably not a good story. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> so let's see here. Um, all right, so what was the genesis of starting your own teaching method in the Dojo University? Um, that one's easy. The genesis for me was, uh, right back, going back to that Pipe Not Summer Drummer story, what I was doing was sharing my unique perspective on uh, how bagpipes and the fundamentals of playing the bagpipes work. The way I thought about it and still think about it is very, very different from the way most people think about it. So the genesis was very simple. It was, if I can get this out to the world, it may be a viable product. Um, and obviously it's not just about dollars and cents, I'm very passionate about how I approach the music, especially at this point, but that was it, really, was, um, you know, I have something unique to say, let's, let's make it happen. As a teacher, what would you say is your biggest pet peeve when listening to a pipe? Easy, I'll have to give it to you in one sentence for once. Focusing on shit that doesn't matter. <laughs> Speaking of you, shit. you told me I could swear. <laughs> yeah, I can do whatever you want. You're bleeding me out. So. Speaking of shit that doesn't matter, <laughs> what is the most indispensable item in your pipe bag? Uh, that's a great point. I, um, I uh, here we go. A philosophical moment. I'm not one of these people that has like, like super ancient, ultra expensive, uber sentimental bagpipes. Like I've got a very nice set of nail bagpipes in there. I've got a few different rolls of hemp that I've basically absconded with over the years that live in there. Got some drone reeds that uh, I've acquired here and there, but honestly there's nothing in there that goes beyond just being a tool to create music or bagpipe music, right? So honestly, nothing. I'm not attached to any of it. Okay. You know what I mean? Not even your, not even your pipes? No, like, uh, like for example, in the quite likely scenario that someday soon 
I walk through a doorway playing and the bass drum just snaps in half and then maybe they fall into like a pit of fire. Like I'll be a little bit sad, but it's not, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. It's like, uh, but I'll, then I'll find another bagpipe that will be really great and I'll play that one. I don't, I'm not sentimental about it at all. It's like, and I've thought about, I've thought about this. It's like recently sort of become like that's what's going on is it's really just a tool for me as opposed to like a, a, a sacred entity that it is for most pipers maybe it would change I think it would all change like if the right instrument came along it would probably all change but for me it's you know uh, we've got fit sets in the family that that we're really sentimental about but I don't necessarily play them I don't think they sound as good as what I've got right now so if Stuart Little in his will left you his McCrae's would you feel different yeah for sure like I, I think yeah absolutely I've never been in that situation but uh, but I also don't seek out those situations you know like some people are on the forums and whatever looking for legacy sets um, yeah see those set that set you'd have to play we've got some legacy sets in our family but they're not necessarily in the best shape uh, and they're not necessarily the best instrument so they're absolutely sentimental like I d I'm not going to lose them or lose track of them but uh, if the right student came along that needed them I'd probably give them away uh, you know etc you know what I mean so who are your favorite musicians now piping and or otherwise as far as pipers go I'm like I'm in such a I'm in such a place of bliss right now like playing in a band with Stuart although it's like Stuart's way different when he's your boss. Is he? In a good way, yeah. but like, you know, it, it really, because it really makes you want to play so much better than you're actually capable of playing. <laughs> like, it's, uh, so it's like, you know, it's very, very difficult. Um, just because you want to live up to your own standards that you hope you can get to, right. which is pretty difficult. But I'm playing an Inverary now, which is great, um, as long as circumstances don't change. Uh, like for me in my life, I'll continue to do that, I think, for the next couple of years. And then, uh, you know, it's really, really cool and enjoyable. Probably, he's probably my favorite Piper at the moment, but man, there are so many great ones. Do you mind talking a little bit about Stuart and what, what's different about him as a pipe major? Because you've known him for a long time. Yeah, well, I knew Stuart, uh, I was young. He wasn't quite as young, but we played in SFU together. And he was a great role model in SFU. Um, and, I've, and I've known him for a long time. Although I sort of stopped um, seeing him often once I moved back to New York because then he was living in Scotland and aside from occasional trips to the worlds where he and I would both be extremely busy and so we didn't really cross paths much. Um, but I have known Stuart for a long time. And the question was... What is he like as a boss specifically? Now that you're in the um, same about it. Yeah, the, the thing that struck me right away when I first got into the band and started playing is that Stuart uh, really trusts you if you're a member of his band, which you think, great, he trusts people, that's just the greatest thing ever. But it's a double-edged sword, and it's very, very poignant. So he's willing to place absolute trust in you to do a great job. But if you don't do a great job, you have to deal with you know, having disappointed him and others. And, and, but it's not, you, you would rarely get in trouble for messing up in the band. But he trusts you to put out the best possible performance. So it's like a very interesting, uh, like competitive, 
highly like focused, positive environment. Uh, even if things go wrong, and I, you know, we're gonna, I think, maybe have questions about that, how you deal with mistakes. Um, but even when mistakes are made, the way they're dealt with is really, really good. Uh, and it's because he, he trusts you to do a good job. You wouldn't be there if you didn't, but he really stresses that, which is, which is interesting and different from other groups where micromanaging and just kind of like the leadership trying to do everything for everyone in the group, right? Like as opposed to that style, which um, is not, doesn't yield results that are as good in my opinion, or at least it seems that way. Do you think that's a factor of that he can trust you guys because of the level which you play at anyway? Absolutely, yes. But but still there's uh, but still there's all the issues of being a strong professional team member that are always crop up regardless of how awesome uh, a player in the band might be. You know what I mean? Like there's there's attendance, there's focus, there's practicing enough on your own. You know, there's, you know, really mastering the material, um, just interpersonal things, right? All those elements still have to, be, still require leadership to bring that all together. Now, you and I were in Virginia this year together. And you I remember that. I remember most of that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great time. Yeah. But uh, I watched them practice quite a bit, and you stepped in. That was that the first time you practiced that was the that first. Year? That was the first, like, yeah, that was the first period of time where I was in the group practicing with the group and, yeah. and performing with the group. The thing I noticed about the way they practice is, one, by that point they probably knew all the music, obviously. All yes, music absolutely. By that time of the year, but Stewart is not a yeller type. He's, it, it, to be honest, I didn't really hear anything go wrong, but I'm sure there wasn't perfect. I'm, it never is, right? But he just sort of did it again. He never really, he just kind of, it was almost like he was communicating with you guys without saying anything. Yeah, uh, he does say things, for sure. Um, I think, um, especially at that level, um, and he's a, obviously a master, and he's leading the group, and he's talking to a lot of people who, if they're not masters, they're certainly approaching a true mastery of the instrument. So very, very small statements can really make a huge difference. And I think that's probably what was going on, right? Um, he'll have a thing or two to say, to point out, and then, and then that's how the band will go about improving. Okay. I think that... Uh, I'll just say, like, I'll just say as, uh, I'll, you know, I'll just point point out a little bit too, which people often don't realize, is when you're in a grade one band and a lot of folks are watching and looking on, a lot of times how the band operates changes versus when it's in a closed room, for sure. Uh, but you're right, Stuart's not a, not a yelling type, but the, the intensity and the sort of like, the presentation is different. Uh, when you're out in sort of a public group where people are watching, so so like it would have it would have been more subtle what you would have seen to begin with. Uh, that's something he did better than I did when I had great one bands. I would just like keep yelling and <laughs> and doing the micromanaging that I just talked that you shouldn't really do. Yeah, right. yeah, but I would do that. It didn't matter where we were. Right. Um, now you went to the Worlds with Denver this year. Yes. Um, you guys came in second this year overall. Right. Um, did you see the sheets after? Yeah. Can you just give us some insight? What is on a grade one sheet? Give us one comment that they said. Um, okay, good question. For the most part, it goes something like this. Uh, excellent, very good, really enjoyed this. Slight something, something, something in the something part, right? Uh, you know, drones, really good, if they're good, or 
drones not quite as good at the end as they were at the beginning. Uh, you know, lively uptake to real, and then you can see the placing. In grade one, especially, in grade one especially, it's very common to have sheets that are very, very positive, but you don't necessarily always get the great result. You know what I mean? So at that level, the judges are picking between what, between, of all the awesome performances, which performance was the awesomest, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. It's different, right? I think Ken Neller has a famous statement about how it's actually, you know, it can be harder to judge a grade four contest well than a grade one contest because there's such a wide range in grade four and, and you're dealing with how do you balance the negative with the positive. In grade one, it's how do you, how do you value the positives? So is losing by one point worse than, say, losing by five points? Yeah, um, it's, it doesn't matter. It's like not winning, it always feels the same. Uh, with that said, I've actually now been fifth at the Worlds. Sorry, second at the Worlds five times. <laughs> I can tell you it always feels the same, which isn't all bad, by the way. Like, it's, it's a pretty awesome feeling and honor to be that close to the top. It really is. As much as you'd always rather win, um, it still feels really good. Uh, to have put forward your best performance and to be rewarded for it, even if it isn't quite at, quite at the very top. I heard somebody say once uh, in piping, or probably anything, I suppose, but learn to make a mistake like a professional. Um, how would you handle mistakes during a performance? I think, or that's, a competition I think that's a great question. And for me, um, yeah, like learn to handle a mistake like a professional, kind of. <coughs> for me, like... It's learning to understand that any moment when you're playing, in one way or another, there's probably a hundred different little mistakes going on, right? Like, no matter how well you tune your drums, right? They're always still on a, some sort of weird quantum level, like not perfectly tuned. Uh, like, no matter how well you play a D throw, there's always some, something that could be better about it, like on some level, right? And so when you realize that nothing is ever perfect, and that all you're doing is striving to get as close as you can, it really changes your perspective on mistakes. And, and it really, like for me, it frees your mind uh, to stop worrying about the big mistakes as much because, you, you know, it's, it's, more about, uh, it's more about just making the most out of all the little mistakes that are happening than it is about avoiding some sort of big mistake. With that said, though, we were talking earlier, like, like uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean giant mistakes are like somehow cool or something. No, like you, you, you know you have to you have to work at it. You have to work to master it. But you're not you're never going to reach perfection. Given that, what do you think it takes to make a great piper? Um, I think that's part of it. I think uh, I think a, an understanding a, a certain faith and like um, in that no matter how great you get, there's way more great still to go. I think that's the big thing. A lot of people really don't understand that, especially uh, in pipe bands when you're, you know, when you're trying to help people and teach people. <clears throat> By the way, no matter how good you get with that particular fundamental that we're working on, there's still way more to go, way more. Picture any other pursuit, basketball or golf or engineering or whatever, right? Once you're here, there's still here to go. Guinness. 
how do you explain that to your students? Because <clears throat> you know, in, a, in the early life of an early, in the early part of the timeline of a student learning in bagpipes, they feel like I hear it all the time, and I remember feeling this way. Everything's a problem. They got a thousand things that they need to fix. Yeah. And slowly over time, fix things or one off at a time. How do you encourage them to get through that? It's a good question. It, it, for me, it comes together with a lot of things. One of the uh, huge um, value, they're like, you know, a huge thing of value in my, my teaching approach is that we identify what things you need to focus on first and everything has a distinct hierarchy, which in the, in the grander mainstream world of bagpipe teaching, that's not so much the case, right? Where it's like, it's a huge cornucopia of different uh, bagpipe items that you have to somehow like try and fit into, and it can be too much. So we try to boil that down, and then we try to, uh, you know, I try to teach that mastery, uh, that mastery-oriented, um, you know, philosophy right from the very beginning, where I explain that like this is something that takes a lot of time to master, and there's at the end of the day, like tuning, for example, doesn't matter how well you tune, it can always be tuned a little bit better. So it's not about getting your pipes in tune, right? It's about learning about tuning and how to tune your instrument. Very different things. Um, and try to t uh, teach that to them and instill that in them. So, <clears throat> at least around Las Vegas, we have a never-ending debate about the pros and cons of modern music being played on the bagpipes, if you will, like say, um, What's the name of this song? Journey, for example, being played on the or whatever, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, how, how do you feel about it? What are your thoughts on, on that? Uh, so, for me, a big, or one of my really big cornerstones is that the bagpipe is no different from any other uh, instrument or any other tool of creating uh, art or like, or personal expression is probably an easier way of putting it out. So. If Journey is like really what you want to do, you absolutely have to go for it and play it on the pipes. I think that, you know, yeah, but it all depends why you want to do that too. I think, I think that, I do, also, I do also think that it can go in the wrong direction. Like sometimes people want to play Journey on the pipes to like get girls, right? Yeah. That's, okay. That is not a good reason to play Journey on the pipes. Right? But if playing Journey on the Pipes is what you have to do in order to adequately express your like, self, your thoughts and ideas, then you absolutely have to do that. <laughs> this is a big thing with her. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, but I'm, but I, I'm joking, but I'm serious at the same time. So like, there's a lot of bagpiping that occurs because we're trying to get girls. That's like an analogy for, there's a lot, especially in the bagpipe world, like, we're trying to get girls, not really, but we're trying, to get, we're trying to get prizes, or we're trying to get a better placing from a judge that did us wrongly at the last contest, or, you know, and all that stuff is a really nice bonus that can come from playing bagpipes for the right reason, which is right to, uh, uh, to express sort of your own self and your own ideas and make your own music, which is really important. Or if we're in a pipe band, right? To make, to make the music of the group that, that we've decided as a group we want to put forth. Right. Uh, and that, like that, to me, that's really the bottom line. It's a huge, 
huge conclusion. I brought it. I brought it around brilliantly there. After a lot of after a lot of blubbering and making no sense. Do you have any thoughts on how your life would be different if you never picked up the diapers? No. Can't imagine. Uh, it's not that I can't imagine it, uh, but uh, I, I, I'm not really. Yeah, I'm not really like a, a regret style person or like a you know multiple universe type person. I can right. I can only go with what I've gone with. But uh, if there were no such thing as bagpipes, I think that's part of the question, right? If there's no such thing as bagpipes or music or whatever, I, I would still have a feeling I would, I would be a creator. I would be, you know, uh, someone who pursues a certain medium in order to express myself. Um, you know, I think that's a big, I think that's a big element of my life that probably would be, would, would have to be filled regardless of what tools were at my disposal. Okay. Although I can never be a carpenter. I really suck at carpentry. <laughs> um, all right, here's, here's a question for you. If you're out at the games and you're helping a student to, uh, get ready to go in front of a judge, what's the last thing you would say to them right before they're about to walk up to the judge? Uh, good luck. Go get them. Yeah, I, I would say a lot of stuff leading up to that, though. Like for, for me, especially younger students, younger is not the right word, inexperienced students, um, it's all, you know, we work a lot on what the game plan is going to be, keeping it super simple, not overthinking it, and making sure that the competitive experience is as close to what you've prepared for as possible. Um, and that's really what we're always working on. And if we can work on that continuously during their warm up, that, that definitely leads to the best performances as well. Okay. So coming to Vegas, to partner with the Las Vegas Pipe Band to put on a piping workshop is a great way to spread the Dojo U philosophy and teaching methods, right? I don't know what you um, mean. But did you really come here to see Celine Dion? I did. The real true. Have you seen my blog video? The, no, which one? I've so, seen some of them. But yeah, I, I, my latest episode is oh, no. about my obsession with Celine Dion. Oh, really? Look, look, haters. <laughs> I'm one of them. Haters. I'm not a fan. Back off. Uh, Celine has an unparalleled degree of mastery in her craft. Oh, that's true. It's you know what I mean? Incredibly annoying. It's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> and, and that's true. There's a lot of pipers that are similar. Oh, yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Don't ask me to name them. Uh, I'm probably one of them. Uh, no, but her, the mastery of what's going on there is really, really remarkable. And so I'm a little bit obsessed. Okay. And have been for a really long time. No, but we mentioned before, like, uh, I'm definitely, uh, I very much admire the degree of mastery. Oh, sure. Couldn't tell you, like, honestly, like, she, like, showed her leg at the show, and she said, this one's for Renee, who apparently is her deceased husband yes. and everything, which I didn't even know. Like, I'm not that kind of obsessed. Okay. I don't know all of her kids' names and stuff. <laughs> Just to dispel any rumors or anything. Okay. Or awkward t-shirts that are going to come out about me and Celine. I do have an important question for you. Being an American. Yes. Are you like America kind yeah. of? Yeah. Uh, yes. Alright. So, what would it take for an American band to do well at the Worlds or to win the Worlds? Yeah. It's a great question. I think that it, it would take a very strong community. Uh, a very strong community of people who are passionate about pipe bands. 
first and foremost, right? I think that's where you look at the SFU program. The whole community in that part of uh, Canada, British Columbia and Vancouver area, such a strong community where uh, passionate pipers and drummers are literally being created all the time. And that's why they've been, I think that's, that's probably the root of how they've been so successful. We don't have anything of the sort yet uh, in the United States. There's areas of great potential, for sure, um, you know, long-standing traditions, but uh, it needs to get probably, uh, it needs to get even more passionate, even bigger, like even more people putting their heads together to create people who are passionate. Like that's the prerequisite, which we don't quite have. There's a lot of people who are passionate, but not with all the ingredients that they need. And then from there, you have to build great bands, you have to have great musical vision, uh, and then uh, at the very, very tippy top, right, there's the logistics, uh, the diplomacy, uh, and all those things that are involved with integrating uh, your group into the sort of global piping scene. So yeah, a lot of things are going to need to come together. Uh, but I like to think that it's definitely something that could happen. All right, last question. You're going to need a drink for this one. What is your favorite curse word? Favorite curse word. I really like most of them. Like, you use like, them a lot? Like, like, this is great. If you could sneak into a conversation. I you know, I haven't actually thought about that word. Yeah, this is great. Guys, I wouldn't say it's my favorite, okay? But extremely underrated as a curse word. I think it could be reintegrated into daily cursing. I agree. I haven't used that one in a long time. I don't know if Think I about that. it. Think about it. I will. Thought provoking. <laughs> well, that will conclude our interview for today. We thank you for attending and coming to Vegas. Thank you for having me. Having a good time, we hope. Um, our clinic's about to start anytime, I'm sure, but uh, we thank you for coming. I'm going to say thank you to all of you for watching. We, of course, have Andrew Douglas here from Piper's Dojo, Dojo University. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed this interview, you have to make sure you subscribe to Las Vegas Pipe Band on YouTube. If you're so inclined, you can also subscribe to me, Piper's Dojo, on YouTube. And from there, you'll have access to the entire Dojo universe. So you know there's one, Perfect. You gotta attack the camera. <laughs> <laughs> All right.